0: Hello, and welcome to this bumper episode of Crop It Like It's Hot in conjunction with Arable Weed Week and sponsored by BASF. We hope you've enjoyed the week so far, and if you haven't had a chance to get in on the action yet, go to croptechshow.com forward slash AWW for all the details on how to tune in. On today's show, we're going to keep the IPM conversation going and hear from a great lineup of guests, starting with my first two. Kent Arable Farmer Tom Sewell and BASF Agronomy Manager Andrew Clune. So, Tom and Andrew, great to have you both here. Um, Tom, should we start with just a bit of background on your farm?
1: Yeah, that's fine. Thanks, Alice, um, for inviting me. um, And Andrew, good to see you as well. Um, Just a little bit of background. So, I'm a second-generation farmer. My dad started with nothing. we farm in the medway valley in kent between maidstone and tuckerbridge wells and currently we're farming about 1500 acres for 15 different landowners um across 10 parishes which is a bit of a headache um and most of that land is on fairly short tenure so we haven't got anything really longer than a written agreement for five years um so that just puts into perspective probably some of the discussion we're going to have ongoing um I'm a knuckled Scholar, which I did in 2013, Um, and my study was on uh, long-term benefits and no-till, so i travelled to North and South America, Australia, um, and looked at people who have been doing it for 40 years to see whether we could bring back some of their technology, um, which we then implemented in the spring of 2014. We built our own drill. Um, So yeah, that's where we're at now. Um, Some people know us for the things we don't do so we don't work on Sundays we don't use any PLK from a bag and haven't done for the past 20 years Um, whole farm gets tested in rotation one in three years um, with an NRM outbreak type test um, and anything that needs to be done is done but as I say no PLK from a bag for the past 20 years and our first week yields would be top side of 10 ton a hectare Um, we don't borrow any money We we have no overdraft facility um, everything on the business is bought and paid for, um, and so yeah, that's the sort of situation we're in. We're all arable. We make a little bit of hay, probably be hundred injectors of hay, um, which we sell into the market. Um, but essentially, we are medium to heavy land, over ragstone rock, both sides of the River Medway, um, and we're all no-till, um, all liquid fertilizer, independent agronomist, um, independent buying group which I think keeps us fairly, fairly sharp on price. Um, we've got quite a simple business. Um, currently, rotation is um, wheat, uh, spring oats, winter beans. We will put some winter barley in this year. We've just given an Aussie rape a break for a couple of years, just while um, we're trying to get on top of this flea beetle. So we do some contracting, drilling, spraying, combining as well. So we're fairly busy, um, but that's where we're at the moment, and our biggest problem would be black grass um in there there isn't really another weed that's a massive problem um we had problems with hedge, hedge mustard in the um uh, but sentient chlomosome used to sort that out but black grass is something we're ongoingly having having a headache with so i don't know if you want any more or less information than that but um, i'll hand back to you
0: thank you and 15 different landowners that must cause quite a lot of challenges in weed control and and even more than that um but i'd be interested to know how has your weed profile across the farms changed since you've reduced tillage has that changed much
1: i don't think it's actually made a huge difference if i'm honest i, I mean there's this sort of panacea that if you go no till it's going to wipe out all your grass weeds and i don't think it's particularly true we've got a very very low disturbance drill which doesn't move much soil um, we're not raking or subsoiling or cultivating anything before the drill um we're not at levels where we can hand rogue. we've got to more than that so the last couple of years we've done double breaks so we've done um spring barley winter beans um i'm just looking at whether i rake just straight behind the combine just to get a flush and then delay drilling but that's all that's a bit of a gamble given the last two two autumns we've had with pretty wet weather and only just getting drilled up last year so it is a headache um we've got i've got a pretty switched on agronomist who is determined to get to the bottom of it um and so yeah we're looking at ipm and all the different things we can do cover crops um getting the soil health really good i mean we've just taken five new landowners on last autumn so we've just started to discover all the pitfalls of some of that land but it's a long-term project and plan really you know it's a bit like putting a jigsaw puzzle together when when land comes up you have to grab it and then you look at the bits around the edge and see how they fit in as well
0: yeah definitely and andrew Thinking about IPM, you know, Tom's just mentioned some of the things he's doing for weed control. Do you think that the industry has kind of got the message now with Blackgrass and IPM and all the things that we need to be doing and it's a matter of just kind of sticking to it now and getting on top of it? And also, do you think there are any other weeds emerging that we might need to move that IPM focus onto now?
2: Yeah, thanks, Alice. Um, So it's an interesting question about messaging. Of IPM and whether those messages have sort of landed and I think I think the industry is really aware now of a lot of the very simple IPM strategies that can be used for grass weed control in particular um, where it becomes difficult is when we have seasons like we've had in the last two years and then trying to also trying to get people to farm without the memory of last year so, to speak. so you know delayed drilling is uh, is one of the best strategies you can, you can have to help with grass weed control. And certainly in the last two years, there has been delayed drilling a little bit due to the season in that uh, when people waited, um, you know, rains came at the wrong time uh, at the end of September, early October. So people were, who had decided to delay drilling were forced to almost the end of October to a drilling window and into November, which was great for all the pre-emergent pre-emergent herbicide controls, and for, for reducing blackgrass populations. But it was probably a little bit too late for where most people wanted to drill. And so next year comes around and we say, right, the agronomist is there saying we need to delay drilling. You know, and everyone's sort of once bitten, twice shy, saying, actually, no, um, first chance I get in September I'm going because I don't want to be in the same situation I had last year. So it's a real conundrum. We, we certainly know that these, these methods work but it's trying to encourage people to do them um you know i often jokingly say i'm based in the west country um that you know w- we are the center for black grass excellence and you sort of sit there and wait for somebody in the meeting to say but you don't have black grass over in the west and you go well yeah that's why we're the center of excellence but if you think about if you think about those cultural controls of spring cropping plowing um delay drilling Grass lays going into the rotations. You know, a grass lay in the rotation is, is your ultimate zero till for three or four years. So those those seeds aren't being disturbed. So if you think you start with a population of, say, 1,500 plants per square metre, and then over, I think it's sort of 70, 80% um, seed decline in a in a grass seed lay, so not grass, lay, in a grass lay um, per year, you know, three or four years later, you're looking at 40 plants per square metre. So all of these things are actually. In practice, now they're in practice in the West Country due to livestock being the rotation. But it shows that actually taking those cultural controls can have massive benefits in the reduction of grass weed, uh, grass weed burden. So I think the messages are definitely, definitely there, uh, and people know them and understand them. I think that there's the um, the commercial practicalities of putting them into place in a in a farm that. Is sometimes a prohibiting effect of the people. I
1: don't know what your thoughts on that are, Tom. Yeah, no, that really touched the nerve here. Um, just as you were talking, Andrew, I was thinking about a, about a really heavy bit of land we've got, which we did what you've just described last last autumn. We, we cultivated it because we wanted to get a black rush flush, but it's land that once it gets wet, stays wet right through the winter. So, so we were there in September putting it in with a, with a time drill, um, all established beautifully, but so did the black grass. Um, and we've ended up spraying two of those fields out with Roundup just because they were just solid, and we never never got there because the rain came. We couldn't travel. Um, we'd cultivated, so the land wouldn't hold the hold machinery up, and then we just watched the black grass come through and smother the wheat. And just in the end, we took the decision, round up it off. Um, most of that blocks now gone into stewardship, which again, like you were saying, with um, grassland, so a big chunk of that will go into um, legume rich Valley, um, which will establish back end of this year. Which you can actually top a couple of times during the season. So as black grass comes into head, you can get out there, top it off hard. Um, and we make hay as well, so I'm still looking at bad, bad patches of fields, maybe splitting some fields and just putting some grass lays in for three or four years, turn them into haylage and hay. Um, there's a good market for it locally, and you know good hay can go on a truck anyway, all over yeah. the country. So I mean, two years ago we were selling hay and it all went to Holland on on the Eurotunnel. You know, so. Right. You know, it's it is a commodity that can be sold. It's fairly fairly cheap to grow, and it might be some a way that we're forced down, particularly if the chemistry doesn't control a huge amount. It's a fairly simple way of doing it. Um, I think we've got a good market for hay. So, um, yeah, I think you said you know twice bit, once bitten, twice shy. I think it's almost twice bitten. You know, the (laughs) last two autumns have been that bad that so many people now are talking about how how early can I drill in September? But I'd be really, really nervous about that on any fields of black grass. I think we've got to get a chip, get stuff growing, growing through first. Yeah. And then I think there's another aspect
2: of uh, – it, it, it borders IPM, but it's about application as well um, in that I suppose it is IPM in, in establishing good crops you know, getting them into good seed beds, rolling those seed beds so that you've got a nice, firm tilth you can apply your, any herbicides uh, – pre-emergent so that you've, you've kept the crops safe by having a good seedbed uh, and so much you can do with, with application now I'm not a, a sprayer operator and I don't have the, the knowledge that someone like Claire Butler or, Ellis or, or Tom Robinson has when it comes to application but getting that application right as well can be bring massive benefits to the efficacy of any product that you're applying at that time as well which will help so it's all intertwined and I think some of those when it comes to application that is some of the easy wins that that growers can do just making sure that they do the job properly as well after they've made a, a product choice when it actually gets to, to that part of the season
0: and tom on that what about you is there one kind of single thing you're doing that you think is really um making moves in your blackgrass control or is it really still very much an integrated approach
1: I think I think it is an integrated approach. I think if it was a silver bullet, everyone would have discovered it by now, and we'd have had <laughs> the conversation with me. So I think you know, to suddenly saying well, i have done X, Y, and Z and sorted the problem, you know, clearly we haven't. And because we're farming for so many different people and so many bits of land on different tenures and different soil types, it's it is a bit of a headache, and you do have to manage what's in front of you um, with all the all the tools in the toolbox. Um, There'll be some tools you use more often than others, but, you know, it's where I use, you know, my agronomist and soil guys to, you know, I, I think the best place to start is a good healthy soil, so getting a really good detailed soil test is really important, making remedial problems, uh, you know, uh, if it needs lime or if it needs P&K or if it needs compost, if it needs subsoiling, if it needs a cover crop, whatever.
3: Mm-hmm. I think
1: building all soil organic matter certainly helps soils, um promoting new worm numbers all those kinds of things soil health is is where it's at i think a good healthy soil will grow a good crop you know um so that's where i'd start and then i think you have just got to learn which tools to use and when and i think you know it's all about attention to detail as andrew was saying you know using the tech technology you've got you know spending time researching which nozzle is the best one to use at what forward speed at what boom height all that kind of stuff is is um you know the best. The best operators out there are, are giving that a lot of attention. I think. Um, yeah. I mean, we we're, we're putting on quite a bit of compost, quite a bit of cover crops are going in. Now that not necessarily helping black grass, but it's all it's all for the drive of improving soil health because we believe that a good, healthy, well aerated, well drained soil will grow crop.
0: Yeah, you're more about that long term approach to it. And how would you? both like weed control to look i mean i guess in an ideal world we just wouldn't have weeds to worry about but is there anything that you're sort of excited about in terms of um you know new technology or new practices that are coming to the fore
1: yeah i mean um it's a bit of a dilemma for me because um we're no till we promote cover crops and you know we chop all our straw so we get a good mulch of of um of chopped straw on top of our or top of the soil so we don't really see the soil a lot so we're trying to promote soil health a lot and I, I do think if you've got really good healthy soil, uh, I know black rice likes to grow in wet, cold damp places um, but it does also grow on the tops of hills where it's pretty well pretty well drained as well so um, you know I think we, we that farmers in the UK are a bit obsessed about not having a weed in the field and I think sometimes you just need to be a little bit pragmatic but given what Andrew said I would agree with how harshly with what he said but I've also got friends who are you know um, can't be cropping so they're putting two or three varieties in the field at the same time harvest harvesting them as one and then putting them across the seed cleaner um, which whether that helps with weed control I'm not sure I've also got a friend in America who's growing into row soybeans with wheat and he harvests the wheat with the soybeans underneath and then the soybeans come through um, really really interesting stuff. And I've also got a friend in the UK at the moment who's doing wide row wheat with grass in the middle and he's mowing the grass regularly but I think it's quite a low yielding wheat and he's got a good market for that wheat as being an organic you know wheat into a sort of bespoke flour mill right. um, but that obviously gets away from chemistry <laughs> not really what Andrew wants to hear um, but I think you know pragmatically what we can do I think you know we're looking at, at row widths as well um, for week we're on nine and ten. We've got two different drills at the moment. One's nine-inch row and one's ten-inch row. And I think on a ten-inch row with um, RCK um, GPS guidance, you could use an inter-row hoe fairly successfully um, at the right time of year, just to hoe out anything in between. Um, again, not ideal, but you know a, a, a piece of IPM technology that is just coming. You know the last few years to the fore. I think you'd use it as a combination of, you know, your goods, like Andrew was saying, well rogue, well-consolidated, it's in the autumn, you know, good pre-emergence or per emergence herbicide control, but then if you've got stuff um, in sort of April, May, and you can get through, um, we don't need to rope hurry and just pull out in between the rows, I think there's, you know, I'm, I'm taking more interest from in that kind of herbicide at the moment, just to
0: see how that can how that can develop and help us. Yeah, Okay. And what about you, Andrew?
2: Yeah, I think the uh, the precision farming piece that Tom sort of just touched on then is, is really interesting. Um, as it's becoming more mainstream now, people are starting to understand how to use it better in terms of uh, you know, field mapping for hotspots for weeds and weed mapping. Weed mapping should be a, a real critical job at um, this sort of time of year, as you can Come through and, and see where the patches are that you've missed and decide whether you want to um, take that zero, till approach, sorry, zero tolerance approach and, and spray out. Um, I'm thinking glyphosate here in, in crops, um, certainly with black grass or um, ryegrass, and actually remove that part of the crop, but actually mapping those areas so you know that there could be a problem there next year. Those sort of things are, um, are becoming more, they're becoming easier to do each year with really. new technology. I think some of the technology Tom's touched upon in terms of. Uh, it's row weeding and the, the the precision that comes now with some of this new um gps kit is going to be really useful and I, and i'm not sure we know exactly how to get the best out of it just yet either things like dual line sprayers that will allow um targeted applications of herbicides in crop and you know there's magic eye technology and this is sort of thing now being used certainly with, with glyphosate um to, to spot weeds all of those sort of things are really exciting about what they can they can bring in the future, and I think we're just getting started down that road at the moment. Um, the, from our perspective, from my perspective with BASF, um, and actually the, the wider um, R and D manufacturers, when it comes to to herbicides, um, the, there's not a lot of new technology coming along at the moment. Obviously, we've got um, a new black grass product, Luximo, in the pipeline that. Um, We haven't seen a lot of new AIs coming through at the moment so any of the new technology is really going to have to be focused around this this IPM and getting the best out of it how we can really.
0: Yeah we've just got to keep having those conversations haven't we? And on to the final question now. So we've got some polls going out this week um, on what the biggest challenges are likely to be for growers going forward. So not necessarily just in the context of weed control Tom but quite generally what do you see as the biggest hurdle for your farm business over the next decade shall we say
1: yeah thanks um there's probably a couple of things the first would obviously be you know we, we own 67 acres as a farming business of the 1500 that we farm and the 15 landowners we farm for most of them would be in their 70s if not 80s so right. potentially there's also might just sail on through looking after it all but at the same time there's quite a lot of turbulence i think how we see the loss and the decline of subsidies going forward what elms looks like um no one really knows how that what effect that's going to have on land that is potentially marginal depending on what what wheat price you put in at the moment every square inch wants planting a wheat, but when wheats 110 120 quid a ton it focuses your mind a bit more so Certainly the land security, um, it's not something I worry about, but it's something that's obviously a factor in our business. Um, I think there's a bit of a shortage of skilled labour in, in the market at the moment. I know a lot of farmers are really struggling to get um labour for this harvest, even now in the eighth of June, you know, big estates up, up and down the country are looking for three or four people, not not the odd guys to to um do some grain casting. They're actually looking for combine operators and drilling operators, which is a bit of a, a bit of a concern. So Actually, how do we see labour come into the business when essentially you're on a big arable farm you only really want them for four or five months of the year, really? Um, and then, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about profitability, isn't it? If we're not making any money, there's not much future, and I think a lot of farmers have relied on that big subsidy check dropping on the mat in December, which isn't going to be there in the future, so I think it's going to really sharpen a few people up. I think we'll lose a few, sadly, but, you know, I think it's probably going to make the sharper ones sharper and the ones that perhaps have been bubbling along actually might need to make the tough decision to call it a day um, so yeah that's really where we're at but fortunately we're a business that isn't highly borrowed um, and we've got you know the capacity and the capability to take on more so I think it's a you know the future's looking pretty good really for us but we've got to be pretty adaptable and pretty, um, pretty robust in you know all the opportunities we look at
0: yeah good thanks tom and andrew perhaps more specifically to kind of the context of agronomy what do you see as sort of the biggest challenge yeah uh, crystal ball time i suppose <laughs> it's uh, i don't know how political
2: to get here from it so a, from a macro perspective i guess we're, we're really looking at uh, it's going to be interesting the next well the next two to three years and then going on with that because um post leaving europe um you know the government's still Going through consultation and deciding the shape of, of what agricultural, farming, food, and the environment policy is really going to be. And we're not, we still don't have the full picture of that yet. Um, certainly, there seems to be a, a real focus on the environment, which is great. Um, and that will influence really a lot of decisions that growers are going to, to make in terms of crop rotation. And as Tom sort of suggested, you know, it all comes through the farm profitability and, and how they go about things. That will then lead to the decisions that agronomists need to make. Um, the more immediate challenges for agronomists uh, that I see is, uh, other than sort of working through the um, the requirements that they'll need to to to, uh, to facilitate whatever agricultural policies in front of them. Um, yeah, you know, we're immediately we're looking at a lot of loss of um, of active substances at the moment. So the IPM strategies can become even more crucial as we lose some of the, 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 the finer tools, that the, you know, the last tools that are in the armory being uh, being the herbicides and, and pesticides that we use. Um, you know They're the last tool we go for and, and, and that toolbox is getting slimmer so we really have to focus very heavily on those um, IPM strategies. And uh, I put into that, although it is a herbicide separately, glyphosate as Tom also touched on earlier, a lot of these, um, the IPM strategies at the moment, um, certainly when it comes to cover crops and regenerative agriculture and including grassland into it, at the moment, um, that does revolve around being able to to use glyphosate to, to take to take out cover crops in a timely fashion, um, and to you know, bring in some of these, um, you know, temporary grasslands and those sort of things that have been used to, to bring those in in a timely fashion. Now, it's not insurmountable; we can farm without it. But it's going to take a big change to the the current strategies to be able to deal with that, and um, it will be a, a big a big shift to what we've been used to. So that I see those as the the loss of active ingredients at the moment, from certainly from where I sit, as um, as as an agronomist, an agronomist that's that's, that's tied to, a, to an to R and D um, manufacturer. That um, that's one of the key challenges in front of us, and. Coupled with that is how we use what we've currently got to to get the best out of it and also to to protect it, to ensure that we have it for as long as possible.
0: So stewardship and, and making sure that um, we're using it correctly in a, in a responsible manner. Yeah. And Tom, I'm just going to ask you another extra question. Sorry. Um, in the context of loss of glyphosate, do you think that you could farm as sustainably as you are now without it? Are you looking at ways you could reduce it or anything like that?
1: Um it's always a question I get asked. I mean when, when I did my natural scholarship everyone said, Well no till is fine, but you rely on, you know, pallets and pallets of glyphosate. Um as a general rule we really use it once per field per year. That's we try not to use it any more than that and um, we use it with uh, you know um, soil conditioners and buffering agents which helps its negative effect um i'd love to be able to farm without it you know i think you know we'd all love to be no-till organic farmers who didn't use any chemicals but we need to produce enough food to feed people and i don't think that's particularly going to happen at the moment um so there are ways around it i think you know there are you can get part of the way through a rotation Without it, but I think you know, if you've got grass weeds and you if you want to grow cover crops, you know, which are actually you look at the, the the way up between cover crops and a bit of glyphosate, cover crops do so much good. They feed, you know, they keep the, the soil aerated You've got all those roots, you're growing carbon, you're harvesting sunlight, you're growing manures and fixing nitrogen out of the air. They're so beneficial, you know, against a little bit of glyphosate, which you know, there's so the jury's out. I think there's so many you know, studies on glyphosate for and against whether it's dangerous. And I think if we use it responsibly, we use it carefully, we use, you know, the operators who are who are um, certificated with sprayers that are mot you know, I think we're doing as much as we can. You know, farmers don't want to be spending fortunes on chemical products unless they see a financial return. There's just just point of us yeah. um, and Andrew's business is to is to generate products that give us a financial return on on, um, on using them so um, you know of course we, we want to farm responsibly and environmentally but I think there's a danger that we go too far down the environmental route and the whole, whole country becomes a parkland and we don't grow any food at the end of the day so.
0: Exactly and that's something that our next guest is going to touch on a little bit and that is land use Great well thank you very much for joining me both of you that was great to chat Thank you, Alice. Thank you, Tom. Thanks. Now, next up, I've got Mike Green, Agricultural Sustainability Manager for BASF, and his role is to manage the balance between a healthy farmed environment and profitable crop production. Hi, Mike. So we've talked a lot about um, sustainability this week and you're an ag-chem company. So how do you think you fit into sustainability or a kind of sustainable farming future? Yeah, good question, Alice. And, uh, I'll probably start by saying
4: actually we're an ag-solutions company. So we've got, you know, traditional the products, which most people would think for. And obviously another part of the company is things like plastics and cement additives and paint so we actually have a a real broad church of which the crop protection is one and I think it's a it's a a wider company sustainability policy that that the agricultural solutions part um, you know has it fully embedded inside it so and we come at it from a, a slightly different way so you can look at sustainability from purely products Um, you can look at it about how those products fit in perhaps at a farm but then in my role we're we're going even further and looking about how farming is fitting into like the country landscape but also more of a global landscape as well and and the biggest thing that's driving everything we do is as an island and you can have imports exports internal use whatever land is where we do all of our activities and that's as as farming and you know us supplying into that business but also you and i as members of society using it for for for, um, social recreation living in places other people businesses um, but also nature and all the other uses you know it land is the critical piece and that forms the basis of our sustainability conversation is in we need to defend and we need to be proud of what we do in, in across the board in farming, and obviously our, we're talking arable farming here really um, is we have a, a really strong right and a, a purpose to be farming that land, I mean lots of other people say well put it into trees um, or oh, I tell you what let's grow a different type of food from it or actually let's turn it all into a nature or a rewilded landscape, okay that's fine they all have the relative merits but we have what well, Five million hectares of arable, nine million of grassland, and all the other bits around it. So not a huge amount. And when you add up everything that everyone wants, you probably need sixty million hectares. You know, and we're with that island. And so, so who's going to give what? And if everyone says we can give up food, we'll just import it. Well, to be fair, from a sustainability point of view, there's an economic, there's an environment, and there's a social impact on everything we do as a company, but as farming and as individuals. And you cannot just take one of those legs off the stool and hope the stool will stand, it won't. So if you offshore your food um, production, you offshore all the carbon and the climate and the natural stuff. And that's what we try and kind of get people to to the place of is we are doing a really good job and actually we are converters as arable cropping um, of sunlight CO2 into plant carbon, stored plant carbon, grain, straw roots that society uses. Yeah, you know, And they, they take the carbon debt with that. So we are an incredibly efficient system. Obviously, products help that and rotations and stuff like that. So so we try and have this. We, we can stand our own against the land, but obviously we are farming um, a landscape where sometimes there are bits of land that aren't as profitable. And as an industry, we need to be more, more clear on where we are making uh, sustainable profit. And that is a real... Profitability. If you aren't making profit, you can't invest. It's not about survival; it's about surviving and reinvestment and growth. And and that comes from areas of the land where that can be achieved. You know, you know your cost production per ton. You can sell into the market more than that. You use the right products at the right time. Cultural control. All this stuff um, means that you are farming that efficiently and converting as much sunlight and CO2, as you can each day, every day, into store plant carbon, which then has a, a market and a societal value. You get other land uses that don't do that, or they do it not as efficiently, and actually we need to look at how, where those places could be on a farm.
0: Yeah, and efficiency is kind of the key word there, isn't it? Maximising productivity in places where you can do that and then putting other bits aside that aren't yeah. so productive.
4: It, it is, and it's actually... If you view anything you do as a land use, and it's not sucking eggs, it's just making a statement as an income stream, and you you look at part of your field that's generating a positive, profitable income stream and others that are doing a loss, if there's nothing you can really do to change that that loss to a profit, then you need to look at another income stream. And, and previously, the def- default has always been an agri-environment scheme, and they if they work for you and they work for a lot of people and they're very effective and there's some really good people in Natural England and DEFRA working to get the right kind of scheme for people and we've had it for a long time, you know, I've been in the industry a long time and the first scheme, 2005, actually before then, uh, 1998, I think it was, you know, it's been around a long time and people that are in it now understand it, people are still new to it, but in your field, if you cannot change the loss to a profit growing crops, then you grow something else. And it might be agri environment it might be an environmental option that is paid for by someone outside of a government scheme. You know, developers are needing to do um, biodiversity net gain, they're needing to offset their own environmental um, uh, challenge, if you like, with someone else, and farmers can do that. There's carbon markets, you know, they're all still emerging, but the point is, to be profitable, you find an income stream for the farming piece and you make that work and you use all the technology and solutions you need to um, and then you the other bits that you can't do, it's not a failure, it's just a another income stream to, to keep you profitable that will deliver something for, for society as well.
0: Yeah. And on in kind of the context of weed control, um, obviously it's Arable Weed Week, what do you think um, is the definition of sustainability?
4: Well, sustainability is all about that Balance between economy, environment, and social, and, and that's, that applies to even a topic down to the topic level at the weed control. Um, and you can look at it in terms of okay, from a profitability point of view, that's you know get, getting the weeds under control. And we all know, you know, people listening will know their their own problem weeds and, and what they're trying to deal with. And you know, um, agchem is a is a solution, and it, but it needs to work alongside and with all the other cultural controls as well, rotational controls, but we've covered IPM in the um, uh, before in some detail. But when you unpick it, there are a lot of things that we're doing, even something like varietal um, choice will help for the competition point of view. So we're not relying solely on one aspect of weed control to deliver everything um i think when we've done that in the past and that's quite a long distant past you know you just need i think you're covering resistance later you just need something in the system that can get an advantage over that and then your system kind of falls down so sustainable weed control is is not a reliance on one particular piece but it's a reliance on the pieces that together deliver you that 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 um risk-free or or low risk management and that's where we've got to go, I'm still amazed that people are not taking long-term strategies with weed control. Some people are, and they do it very successfully, and you know we we, we look at those and we help them and we showcase them as well. Um, but some people are still very much hand-to-mouth, like it's all new. And things like rotation and cultural control, and you know products that you use, the sequences, um, use of cover crops, all this sort of stuff. That it needs a bit more planning. Uh, And that's where the sustainable bit comes in, is you can't, as I say, leg off the stool. You know, we're trying to produce food and food resources for society in those bits we're farming, so we do a good job for that. Um, It's the environmental piece of, okay, you know, are you allowing weeds to escape? Which weeds can escape? Which weeds do you need to support with a strong product or a a sequence of products? That kind of stuff, which then drives the, the economy as well, the economic part.
0: Yeah. And that's exactly what Tom was saying, really, and the approach that he's taking on his farm. I asked um, Andrew and Tom this, but maybe let's go a little bit more into the future. So, say, in 20 years, where do you see weed control might go? I mean, we're seeing robots being developed, we're seeing weed zapping. What do you think it's going to look like?
4: It's interesting. I mean, there, there will be a time where I think, you know, you if you get your rotation right there's lots of talk about soil biology and soil performance and we know with some weeds they can be more aggressive when actually the soil conditions are less suitable for, for the crop so there's that imbalance there so let's just say and you said 20 years alice so i'm thinking okay the horizon to that is five years ten years quite a few farmers are now moving to a 10-year rotation which is good and they're deciding what they're their most profitable crops are in that rotation and then the function of all the other crops in that rotation. So, you know, let's hope that in, in that sort of move forward we've, um, we've got our rotation sorted out, we've got maybe um, soil health builders in there that they also act as weed control. Some of those might actually be people are looking at permanent understories of a legume to act as a uh, soil erosion Control, but also perhaps a a, a broadly we control this kind of thing. I mean, they're all to be tested. You think about the number of fields we have, the number of distant situations and the seasonal impact and all of that is massive. So we're kind of, I think the system's going forward where we'll be are hopefully more resilient systems so if the climate does change as it's predicted and we get these, you know, we we all know it. We look at our weather records and these peaks of sunshine, troughs of, of low sunshine temperature, these, you know, the peaks of 80 million in two days or 50 million in four hours. You know, our systems need to cope with that. Weeds will evolve, but if we can tighten up our systems, are supposed to be resilient to those climate impacts. Then all the other stuff about good crop growth, changing the populations, having the right rotation, people will still be min tilling. You know, it, the panacea is not no till everywhere because there are some soils that it doesn't suit, and actually. Min hill is is still a very necessary um technique also plowing if we want things like roots in rotation and you know and i said earlier about societal choice if society decides it doesn't want sugar beet it doesn't want potatoes roots parsnips whatever that have that element of soil disturbance which then gives weeds an advantage if they don't want those in their their diet and they don't want to import them then yeah sure we change but we do want them in have diet they're a, they're a big part of, of our, our, our society and our food production so those those rotations with those in them will have different challenges and we just need to accept that yeah um you've got things like robots as well i mean yeah green on green whatever the technology is improving and in certain places bob on I, I think they have a real place i just kind of think about on the bigger scale if we're still producing these Bigger resources, you know, the crop resources for energy or for for conversion to food. We've got, you know, you've got 150 hectares to spray. And actually, if we don't have the weeds fully under control, you need quite a lot of robots. Um, And then you've got the climate impact of those and the energy behind batteries and all this sort of stuff and and how they deal with that. So finding that, you know, I I actually made a little note there it's about the right product or the right technique in the right place at the right time at the right rate so we're still in that place at the moment we'll still be there in 20 years
0: and i think it's really interesting that you mentioned the clover understory living mulches as a means for control before you mention anything else so do you think that this kind of management approach where we use biology a lot more um, or nature or however you want to word it is going to potentially even have more of a place than technology
4: yeah, if you think about where we are now, and, you know, we're still evolving, um, you know, chemistry takes a while to develop. You know that it's quite a high cost, but um, and we've got good, you know, across the industry we've got good products and we, we need to fit them in as well and we need to protect them as a whole, you know, not just um, from our company, but everyone needs to understand that what we've got, we need to really hold on to it, so we need to, to fit it in properly. And there will be some places where actually, you know, something like a living mulch will do the job effectively, there'll be other places where it's completely inappropriate.
3: Yeah.
4: And where someone is saying, well, okay, how can I grow? They might come at it from the the, the side of growing their own nitrogen or growing their own soil erosion piece. And you think, okay, well, we need to find another way of doing that. Um, Because the power of that as a weed control agent, if you like, isn't sufficient. And we know weeds can can change and new weeds come up in different places. Um, But it's the balance between all of it. And I think if you took one out of the system, you know, if the regulatory side, the pressure to be that said, actually, you know, we're going to, we, no one has herbicides, then there's a real immediate problem. So they, they have their role. We've just got to make sure sure mm-hmm. that we're we're playing our part in keeping them and using them where they should be, right place, right rate, with the right other techniques as well.
0: Yeah, right place, right rate, right time. That's what we're always told, isn't it? Thank you very much, Mike. Great to chat. All right. All
4: right. Thanks, Alice. Bye, Bye. now. Bye
0: and last on today's show my final guest is ali richards basf campaign manager for cereal herbicides and pgrs and she's going to tell us key messages for the season ahead hi ali good to have you here
5: hi how you doing
0: yeah all good thanks how are you
5: yeah not too bad thank you
0: so Ali, we've talked a lot about IPM um, in the last few days and the responsibility that farmers have. But what do you see is your responsibility as a manufacturer in promoting or supporting IPM?
5: I, 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 think, I think for us, I think the very basic that we should be supporting we should be providing and we do provide um is kind of the ipm messages around product and crop safety for the for the the use of our product so um and that's really common and standard across all manufacturers really you've got your safety data sheets and you've got kind of like your label recommendations and that sort of thing so i think that's the very basic and what our responsibility is but i think um as time move forwards actually i think more and more we need to step up that responsibility and go that little bit further and um, just making sure that we're using our resource and our platform to promote IPM, not just in terms of um, product use, but also um, thinking of a little bit longer term about um, how long that product is going to be usable for. So, you know, chemistry without IPM uh, for issues like black grass and, and ryegrass just not going to work um and i think as much as you know we need to sell our products actually if it's if that product that we're selling is not actually working then um we get into all sorts of um you know environmental sustainability issues it's really got to be a balance and um yeah and i really see the whole manufacturing industry in this space really stepping up to that it's not just us uh, I think some of our competitors are also uh, also doing that and, and just understanding that it's a partnership um, between us our customers our, our you know distribution farmers agronomists we've all kind of got to work together and we've all got a joint responsibility in promoting and supporting IPM
0: and how are you engaging more with farmers? I know you've got your um, Real Results Online Farm, which has got some really good webinars and stuff that I've logged into a few times.
5: Yeah, so it's definitely one of the uh, one of the ways that we're trying to kind of just bring more in depth information um, to to the industry. I, I think the Real Results community started with a, a group of fifty growers um, trialing. Um, chemistry to trial in uh, fungicides for themselves on their farm and I think since then it's really grown uh, to be a community that um, uh, really encourages and supports peer-to-peer learning on some uh, key areas. We know that um, we can talk very academically about what the best thing to do is in terms of weed control and um, as you'll uh, be glad to hear we know our chemistry quite well so we can uh, we can share kind of insights on that but what we What we don't do is that we don't live that reality every day. We don't live that reality of, you know, when the weather changes, um, your kind of decision process changes as well. And I think that's what's great about the real resource community is that we can really see, you know, that academic and that that chemistry best practice. We can hear that from a farmer who's going through it and has um, not just succeeded in areas, but been really honest where they haven't at times and I think just sharing that information I think is is invaluable
0: yeah definitely and you said you've got around 50 growers as part of that community is that something that anyone can get involved with
5: so we have 50 we have 50 farmers trialing uh, fungicides we actually have around uh six or seven farmers trialing luxeno our brand new mode of action but actually the community is even wider than that i think we've got around 1500 um farmers who have signed up to be part of the real results community uh, where they'll get kind of um up-to-date advice throughout the season they kind of get access to areas uh, on the real results virtual farming and, and yeah absolutely that's open to anybody in the industry who's interested you can sign up to be part of that community
0: okay and how valuable do you think that peer-to-peer learning is
5: you know it's part of human nature that you want to um you want to learn and talk to people who are going through what you're going through and i, I think at basf we're really aware that uh, as much as we um, we want to work in partnership and, and we want to share our information, our you know our you know, best practice, um, sci- uh, you know scientific information around IPM, we do understand that um, when it comes down to it, you know the the farmers understand the reality of when the weather changes. Farmers understand the, you know the reality if you get a, you know a really bad flush, and and um, I, I think um, talking to one of our um, our growers that's part of our real results community, um, Tom Saws on this uh, podcast. I'll never forget calling him up one day and saying, Hey, Tom, will you share some information with us about how you've been controlling blackgrass? And he said to me, like, Ali, if you could see what I could see out of my kitchen window right now, um, I'm not sure you'd be calling me up. And that's why Tom is such a valuable of the real results community because he has done some great work with his black grass control but he'll hold his hands up and say when he hasn't and i think that really um resonates with people because black grass and ryegrass are tricky things you can do all the right things which tom does and and you can and you can still have that kind of um Bad year, bad, bad year, and, and and have to really start from scratch and think. Right, okay, what are we going to do uh, next year? And that's what the peer to peer learning is about. It's it's about really understanding what what the realities are for for a farmer.
0: Yeah, yeah, the real results, exactly, exactly, <laughs> and then. Um... Looking ahead to next season, what key messages do you have for farmers in terms of weed control specifically, I suppose, but also, you know, maybe IPM as well?
5: Yeah, so so the last two seasons, I think, have been, the last two autumns have been really tricky, haven't they? They've been uh, really wet, and this is coming after, you know, years and years of being really dry as well. So um, my advice would be, If you are going to delay drill slightly earlier because of the last two years and and that's the reality that you've got to face, um, then just have a look at how early you're drilling. Like We know everything that we know is that delay drilling is one of the biggest things that you can do in terms of IPM and cultural controls to reduce reduce black grass. Especially you know you get uh, a couple of runs at um creating stale seabed as well and i guess if if that's just not a reality f- for you, then I would say um from a chemistry point of view you've got to put your strongest most reliable chemistry on first um within 48 hours of, of drilling and for us uh, we know that there's a new entrants in the market um, but for us right now we still believe that crystal is the best um is your best foot forward really it's it's 20th season crystals in its 20th season um uh, and it's still it's still performing really well and i would just say use chemistry um use chemistry that you trust uh, but again and it's something a, a farmer told me recently which i agree with you know chemistry is the the cherry on, on top if, if you're not focusing on rpm if you're not focusing on cultural controls then you know you, you're, you're making your chemistry work so hard and it might it might It might not be able to do what you want it to do if you don't think about all of those uh, other steps in that process.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's the real challenge with IPM. You know, things like these really wet autumns we've been seeing. We all know that delayed drilling for black grass is the way to go, but the conditions just aren't allowing that in some cases anymore.
5: Exactly, and I think that's where you've got to there there's the academic approach uh, which is the right thing to do. we learn a lot from that and then there's the reality yeah. of the uh, the reality of the situation and the, um, the difficult decisions that, that need to be made so um, yeah, I'm hoping. I'm hoping for everybody that we have a f- fabulously open autumn, and um, and people will really be able to, you know, claw back some of that control we've maybe lost in the, in, the, in these last couple of really wet autumns. Yeah, that's my hope for everybody. Yeah, this autumn. I, I definitely think
0: we're due one, aren't we?
5: <laughs> I think. so. I think we're owed it, especially after this year. We need we need a bit of good news, don't we?
0: We really do. Okay, that's brilliant. Thanks, Ali. And that's all we've got time for for today, I'm afraid, but I hope you enjoyed this bumper podcast episode sponsored by BASF. As always, you can claim one CPD point for listening to this podcast. All you have to do is email your BASIS account number plus the name of the podcast to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. Arable Weed Week is still going on so make sure you visit croptechshow.com forward slash aww to get in on the action with webinars, weed workshops and much more. Our next podcast episode will be out in just a few weeks where I ask a great panel of guests whether they think regenerative agriculture is a fad or the future. Very topical at the moment so make sure you tune back in for that. Thanks very much for listening and take care.